For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening, everyone. Good to see you all, and nice to meet you to those of you I haven't met. My name is Thea. Um, yeah, tonight I wanted to talk about anxiety, um, thought loops, and zazen. Um, I was inspired to think about this for tonight um, because of Mike's talk a couple weeks ago um, about anger, where he, he started that talk with a description of a kind of an anxiety fantasy that he was having, <laughs> um, sleeping in his house alone, um, where someone broke into his house and his fear. And, and so Mike was talking about the kind of ambiguous object of his anxiety, this like strange question, am I afraid I'll be hurt? Am I afraid I'll be wronged? Or am I just afraid that I'll have to confront myself having a confrontation? Um, and that story really stuck with me and struck me because I've, I would have played that in my mind many times and many different kinds of scenarios like that. Um, and I've had that experience as long as I can remember my whole life. I've always had those kinds of loops. I experienced them as loops that kind of pull me in and, um, and that I have a really hard time separating from and letting go. They can feel really important in the moment when they're <laughs> present. Um, so, yeah, I've spent a lot of my life learning how to be with that fact of how my anxiety works. Um, and I think, you know, I'm at the beginning of that journey in a lot of ways, but I think probably in the, in the most basic level, that's probably what's brought me to Zen. Um, it's just, yeah, an attempt to become curious about this way that the mind works rather than being resentful or ashamed of this. Um, so yeah, I was a little set up and I'm going to talk a little bit about my thoughts on thoughts. <laughs> um, so I think I might have shared this like another time that I gave a talk, but when I was really little, maybe around seven or eight, I began having trouble sleeping at night. Um, and I remember very explicitly that I was afraid of death specifically. But it wasn't so much dying in itself that scared me. It was instead this paradoxical thought of eternity that was conjured by contemplating my own finitude. For some reason, as soon as the lights would go out, I would begin thinking about forever and how big forever was in comparison to my own small duration. And for years, I would just essentially gape at how big this abyss was and just stare into this abyss <laughs> in awe and fear. I was raised Catholic, so maybe that's part of it. Um, so this went on for several years. And I remember at this time I was constantly talking to adults, whoever would engage me to see what they <coughs> might have to offer me on this concept, what they thought about it. And I remember being really hung up on trying to find an old person who could tell me that they had conquered it, that it was over, and that they were not afraid, and it was totally peace at that. Um, so, and then I remember eventually having the, the kind of concrete realization that I could spend my whole life 
worrying about not existing, or I could just decide I was going to try to avoid the thought directly. <laughs> so this seemed like a solid plan, um, since gaping into the abyss had only given me a lot of fear so far. But, you know, by avoiding the thought directly, I continued to experience it indirectly. Death or finitude became a motif for the unknown in general. Maybe it's the other way around, I don't know. And I began to be plagued by small worries about all the things I couldn't control. This has always happened to me through these strange kind of negative fantasies where I play out all the possible bad things that can happen. Supposedly with the rational justification that by doing this, I'll be better prepared to face the unknown when it does occur. Mostly, though, this is a form of self-punishment or self-indulgence and an attachment to looping thoughts. As a kid, I wasn't conscious of that, of course. I just thought that's how everyone experienced thinking. On some level, I do think this is how everyone experiences thinking, which is why we practice Zazen, to help us to learn what it might be like to let go of our grasping and of our desire to control. But I've come to learn that my anxiety is maybe some more dramatic version of this basic pattern of the mind, which engages with pretty fantastical, fantastical and sometimes terrible examples. So the basic way that these thought loops work for me, as I've come to have a functioning relationship with them, is that essentially I have a range of more to less irrational possible loops that bait my anxiety throughout the course of a day. So when these enter my mind, sometimes I notice them and I'm able to just not engage. And other times I grab on tight and I ride the wave. The level of irrationality of these thoughts is not primarily marked by how unlikely or absurd they are, though some of them certainly are, but rather how blatantly out of control they, out of my control they are. The really irrational ones are, of course, the most scary of the I hope my partner doesn't get into a horrible car accident on the way to work variety. <laughs> but oddly, I've come to appreciate these ones because they provide me the proof that all these kinds of thoughts, even the most seemingly rational ones, are of the same seed. My most outlandish worries serve as a kind of exemplar of thought loops in general because they remind me of this most basic motif I've held with me as long as I can remember, death, finitude, non-being, the unknown. This motif becomes dressed up in more or less abstract images, arranged, rearranged, the parts are set up and reversed. Sometimes the object becomes death and sometimes it's the subject. Often I am death, other times death is outside me and we face one another. But it's this intimacy that I've always had with the most irrational version of this fear that I've oddly found healing. It allows me to see that there is something held in common in the image of a random tragic car accident befalling me and my family, and the image of a friend having left a conversation with me feeling distance, misunderstanding, maybe even judgment of me. Something in common with this, and with the fear that an important authority figure in my life will wake up tomorrow and realize they don't support me, they don't like me, and I'll be without allies in my work. In all these examples, there's a basic urge to control the outcome, a basic discomfort with the autonomy of another, a friend, a teacher, nature, 
to determine something about my own life. In, in this sense, maybe the fear of a friend breaking your heart, and maybe even worse, for a good reason, isn't an abstraction for death, but death is an abstraction of this basic fear. In other words, maybe anxiety is not an attempt to rationalize death or the unknown that abstracts it to the individual circumstances of life. Maybe the idea of death is an abstraction or rationalization or reduction of our everyday experiences. But this abstraction, it makes something explicit to us that is implicit in all the moments of our lives. The discomfort with the autonomy of others and with the inherent limitation of my own autonomy that arises in my fear, but also, I think, in all vices, jealousy, anger, pride, so on, presents me directly with this gap between myself and another. But it's not simply this gap that is at issue. If we're, we're only distance at play, which I'm not even sure we can exactly imagine or cognize, it would be different. Instead, what is at issue here is the kind of gap that draws me in to face it. In other words, I'm not simply disturbed by the fact that some unknown may happen out there in general, on a star a million light years away, but that something unknown will confront me, and further, that it does confront me, that it bears on me directly, here and now. It is this distance which binds that I'm confronted with in my anxiety. But differently, in anxiety, I see that it is nothingness that is actually the basic matter of all connection, of all being. That abstract idea, no less real because abstract, is made really concrete in all the moments of my life. It is always there, if only indirectly. We either perceive it come face to face with it, or we do not. Now, I hope that the fact that I've used words like anxiety and fear doesn't make it sound like there's something wrong with all this, that it is somehow a tragedy that it's like this, or that it should be otherwise. No. That would only be another negative fantasy that hopes to close the gap and end all possibility of confrontation and that, if it were successful, would end up, oddly enough, being literally death itself. The attempt to annihilate denial is only the intensification of annihilation. It is a paradox. Strangely, it is this nothingness that makes up all beings, and all spaces between beings, and all spaces between the spaces between beings. And that is being. <laughs> My lack of control does not just affect me from the outside. I am because of this lack of control. It constitutes me at my most basic level. There is no substantial I here. This lack of control, this fundamental lack of an I, is the freedom that structures and binds all things. Oddly, we confront this fundamental fact of our freedom as a fear of being determined from the outside, as a fear that we're not, not free. For example, I'm scared something horrible will happen to me and that this will inhibit my freedom, even though the fact that this could happen is the condition of my freedom. We want and we do not want this freedom. 
This means that no matter what happens, I'm always both facing and turning away from the object of my anxiety. I'm always both free and not free, both being and not being, both confronting this and not confronting this. As it is said, the vast inconceivable source cannot be faced or turned away from. So now that I've set up and clarified that condition, I just want to spend the last moments of the talk thinking about Zazen's relationship to all of this. And I'll just say it once more another way. In my anxiety, though I think it's different for each of us how we, how we, how we greet this thing, in my anxiety, I confront something strange about the nature of myself and of being in general, that it is constituted above all by not-self and by not-being. I confront this truth in a range of direct to indirect ways, what I call at the beginning a range of rational and irrational representations. It's a paradox because the direct confrontation with the not-self and non-being can immediately become abstract, and the indirect can immediately become concrete. Myself, I abstract it. It becomes flimsy and unwieldy. It becomes a crude rendering of an exemplary image of that which I can't control. It therefore becomes a parody-like image of death. I only really confront this gap that binds directly then in its indirect form in my concrete experience here and now, where it is never explicitly revealed as such. It remains implicit in my sensory experience. Again, the vast, inconceivable source cannot be faced or turned away from. Now, Zazen is the disciplined study of these phenomena. It starts with an impossible prompt. Just sit. That's where we begin. It's a riddle from the start. Trying to sit shows me how hard it is to sit. As I said, I learned to learn about how body-mind works. I learned to feel the tension in my body and my mind, which I spend most of my life avoiding. I observe the ways that I cope with this tension by offloading it onto support systems, by compensating in different ways. I literally do this juggling of compensation throughout the whole process of Zazen. Zazen presents me with the fundamental question. Put abstractly, what do I do with the tension when it arises? Concretely, do I lean over a little more? Do I engage in that thought as it arises? Zazen begins then by showing us that the direct is the indirect, that the abstract is the concrete. The tension we experience in Zazen is no different from that gap that binds that generating force of non-being that makes up being. Practically, Zazen gives me a deeper and deeper sense of how my thought loops work, and it prepares me to make the choice to let them go. However, it doesn't do this by proving to me that they are irrational or unreal. On the contrary, Zazen shows me just how real these loops are. Zazen simply nudges me again and again back to this enigma that we call the present moment, saying, it's here, 
And now, just as much as it's out there, beyond and above, before and ahead, you don't get away from it. You don't approach it. You're just with it. Therefore, Zazen undoes the gap by preserving it. And it offers this paradox to us as a gift, a riddle, and a challenge to be compassionate. Or better, to recognize the compassion that we and all things are already made of. That is, since Zazen shows us the lack of self at the heart of all things, it is therefore fundamentally selfless, pure compassion. This is what is called a gift. The choice to let go is no choice at all, which is not something we can understand or explain since it's given to us. How does Zazen teach this? Maybe it is that Zazen nudges me back to the breath, to this original proof that I am already outside myself, that I am already not one. By practicing again and again, we gradually cultivate the possibility of receiving this fundamental truth of emptiness, this concrete breath here and now, for what it is, a gift. So thank you for all the words I have. I'd love to hear anything that comes to mind, any thought loops you have in your own mind, or how Zazen's been feeling for you lately. Thank you. Thank you, Sophie. So, comments, questions? Really interesting responses. Uh, and Jerry, maybe you can help. Um, so your talk is reminding me of uh, a few years ago when I was uh, in a different position in the saga, and I think I was upset with the job I was in. I had a talk, or I went, I went to a teacher here for help to like talk it through, and I was complaining about how I, and I'm sorry if this was supposed to be confidential, I feel like it's applicable though. Um, so I was like frustrated about how, you know, I didn't feel like I was getting enough support at the temple and I was frustrated about my job and it felt like things were, um, you know, I just, I didn't feel like I was being supported in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then this person said, it was a really quick response. Like, well, actually you're, you're supported by, everything by all beings that really like kind of destabilized me in a good way for a second of like like you know this attachment i had to like i'm on my own and like well i can how do i get through this and 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 it's i think it's uh it's sometimes harder to feel and i'm saying this out of like empathy or passion, like it's harder to feel how we're being supported and I know that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and I'm going through but I do believe that. I don't not even believe that I like feel like I know it that mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that things are scary, at the same time everything is working together somehow. 
mm-hmm. and everything, and, and, and we and, and I and we are being supported by the universe and by each other and by beings we know and beings we don't know uh, to be ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I know this really intimately right now because I'm going through a big transition in my life, and like one of the big cataclysmic things that I was afraid of possibly happening is happening. Mm-hmm. And and it's at that moment where like I'm seeing how many people in my life are coming out of the work to like um, provide to, to to help me, you know. And uh, the things that I was afraid of happening, like has actually turned out to be a doorway to just the next stage of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's, it feels more like change than mm-hmm. there's loss obviously, but, but it's, um, uh, I feel confident that like, I can't like, that I can face the unknown mm-hmm. because of that support by beings that I know and beings that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it felt A sense of things being out of control or maybe come out of control or are grasping on to, oh, I can take care of this. <laughs> uh, there's a way in which realizing beyond control and how to say it can, can be uh, nourishing. Okay. Uh, but, but, yeah, so I said, you know, it rubs it in my face. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you have a response about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like we're, we're always doing it. We never don't do it. That's what's so paradoxical about it, is that you like think you're afraid that you won't be able to handle it, but all you do is constantly handle it because you're never <laughs> you're never in control. Yeah. But I thought I saw Brian's hand if you still had something to say. That's a wonderful talk. Thank you very much. Um, very, um, very touching in a deep way to, I can relate, uh, as a much younger person. I used to do, you alluded to at night when the lights would go out and you'd start thinking. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, Number one, it's wonderful to hear a Dharma talk about this. And I'm willing to bet that if we could scroll the database of all Dharma talks ever given, uh, you know, facing the question of, you know, the end and death and all these things, uh, probably is pretty high on the list of, of things that humans have worried about. For me, 
uh, I definitely remember being, um, you know, it was like, in a way, you know, in Buddhism, we talk about meditation on emptiness, where ultimately you are left with, with nothing uh, conceptually. And it's not too far different from uh, an, an analogy to trying to picture yourself literally not cognizant, you know, mm-hmm. because you know that you're cognizant thinking about not being not cognizant. But what would it be like to not be cognizant at all? Um, and of course, some people have mentioned there's a comforting thought to some degree that, well, what was it like before you were born? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, OK, yeah, I mean, I wasn't worried then. I don't think I don't remember. <laughs> but uh but I have to say that one thing that I've found in um in my pursuit of of learning and doing the dharma over many years the more I got into the bodhisattva aspect of it or trying to learn about that um because mm-hmm. when I first started in zen a long time ago it was all about how can I become more focused? How can I be more calm? How can I be this, that? Um, and over the years, you know, I, I opened up to the real amazing value of the Bodhisattva ideal because uh, as your wisdom slowly grows about, you know, your inability to control things, uh, you look around and you see other people you know, very concerned and very worried and very anxious and the the great desire to ease their burden and to comfort them. I just got through with quite a number of years of caring for my mom as she slowly succumbed to a very long-term illness. And I, you know, I essentially set all concerns about me aside while I was totally focused on her quality of life and it was amazing how little I worried about myself. You know, I was running around. Um, and my only concern was was her well-being and her uh, peace of mind, etc. So I think there's great value in focus on others as a way of diminishing our own anxiety. Uh, at least that's been my experience. But I appreciate your talk. It was very valuable. And I always am... Uh, happy to get someone else's perspective on this and and it's it's very valuable to share thank you yeah i've definitely had the oh if i wasn't afraid before i was born that helps that helped me i think (laughs) but i think partly i was because i was raised catholic i really did not the the idea I think I never bought from the very beginning that I was going to like go to heaven and see my grandpa, you know? And I don't think that that's necessarily what everybody who raised me thought, but that was kind of what I was taught in school. So I think I was like, that partly made me terrified as a kid. Cause I was like, this doesn't seem real. So what, what could it be? But I think when I originally discovered, when I started reading Buddhist texts in college, I remember thinking it just intuitively felt so much more, like I just connected to it intuitively and what you were saying about the imagining not cognizing now, like it just, it just all, it helped me to unravel the kind of paradox by just making it a paradox rather than it feeling like it can be resolved, which I always felt like was what the like idea of being saved felt like for me. 
Does that make sense? Thank you. Well, this has been a great talk and a great discussion. Really deep for all of us. Uh, it's about time to wrap up, but if anybody has uh, further brief comment or response, very brief. When I was a little kid, I was afraid of dying. <laughs> and my parents had to come into the room and talk to me. And it was, and I'm a little kid. <laughs> to share that with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.